In the summer of 2023, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, spent weeks on a whirlwind tour of global capitals, consistently underlining the urgent need for international regulation of AI. However, according to Time Magazine, behind the curtain of these public appearances, OpenAI was actively lobbying for substantial elements of the world's most comprehensive AI legislation, the EU's AI Act, to be diluted in ways that would lessen the regulatory obligations on the company. Their lobbying was successful enough that in several instances, the final text of the EU law, approved by the European Parliament on June 14, incorporated amendments suggested by OpenAI. The legislation is now on its way to the final negotiation stage, with its finalization anticipated as early as January. The back and forth between AI developers on the topic of government versus self-regulation is dizzying. And in the madness and chaos, there doesn't seem to be much ethical oversight, leaving glaring possibilities for individuals and communities to be taken advantage of. In a time where the interest in deploying AI is rampant, how must we safely and ethically regulate this technology? Moreover, how must we do so in a meaningful and responsible way that protects everybody? We welcome you to the Responsible Use of AI podcast, a podcast committed to fostering conversations amongst a diverse array of scholars. Together, we delve into the intricacies of AI technologies and tools, scrutinizing their implications and the ethical responsibilities we must shoulder before their widespread deployment. Because AI holds the potential to radically disrupt many sectors, our mission is to help ensure that the transformative power of AI is as beneficial and equitable as possible. For example, AI in healthcare stands out as a key sector for disruption. For diseases like colorectal cancer, AI has shown immense promise in predictive analytics, diagnosis, and prognostic determinations, outperforming human accuracy in some cases. However, despite its potential, a darker side of AI is also evident. Research shows that the AI algorithms and models we create often carry biases, specifically against marginalized and racialized groups. Consequently, AI could have devastating and life-changing impacts on these communities if left unchecked. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Lowen Cologne, and I'm joined by our two co-hosts, Vanessa Ferguson and Akanksha Kondwaha. We begin with acknowledging that we are gathered and recording on indigenous land, specifically the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe, that has been inhabited by indigenous peoples before the land was colonized by settlers. As settlers on indigenous lands, we are grateful for the chance to gather on these lands and commit ourselves to honoring and respecting the generational care and wisdom through our work and with indigenous communities. This means continuing collective efforts to acknowledge and mitigate the harms produced and endured by colonization, which can all become exacerbated in the age of AI. While a land acknowledgement is an important step, we believe that ending settler colonialism and white supremacy are equally as important so we urge you to move beyond deep considerations and to take action to decolonize these lands and end occupation. In today's episode, we discuss sustainable and ethical computing in the age of AI, especially for and with marginalized communities locally and globally. Our guest is Dr. Ishtake Ahmed. Dr. Ahmed is an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Toronto. His research focuses on studying, analyzing, and designing computing technologies with marginalized populations around the world, 
through a sustainability and social justice lens. Dr. Ahmed's research spans political philosophy, critical theory, social science, anthropology, and STS literature, and informs mobile and ubiquitous computing, natural language processing, social media, and machine learning. So we'd like to welcome Dr. Ahmed. Can you tell us a little about the extent of your research and how it came to be? Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Um, by the way of interaction, um, I, my research is mostly focused on upholding the values of marginalized population. I myself am coming from Bangladesh, um, where it's a post-colonial uh, history, it, you know, kind of dominates this uh, the functioning of this country is now transitioning from a low to middle income country. The political turbulence is there. Uh, most of the people uh, live below the poverty line. Um, and a lot of, you know, like uh, tensions uh, that we have seen uh, in terms of uh, cultural uh, appropriation, um, uh, political turbulence, I said, uh, you know, during this turbulent period I grew up and I saw at the same time, modern technologies were penetrating the country, you know, like, you know, shiny new uh, smartphones, uh, Wi-Fi technologies, broadband, smartphones like Uber apps, social media and whatnot, they all are coming uh, to the country and they all are promising uh, better lives for, for the citizens. But what we found that none of the problems that the citizens used to have before was being addressed by these technologies. And in fact, in most of the times, uh, you know, like those problems are getting worse. So that was the time, you know, like I was growing up, uh, you know, late 90s and early 2000, uh, you know, I was starting computer science. And even if you look at this uh, global trend, uh, the this poorer countries are producing most of the computer scientists who are then serving the big tech companies. If you look at uh, the employees and big tech companies like Facebook and Google, most of them are coming from Indian subcontinent or from China. And they are kind of, uh, you know, like uh, moving this big economy of United states or uk of this big country so this is like a broader picture of modern day colonization which i you know felt i was also going to be a, a part of because i was uh, you know uh, doing my education in computer science so during the end of my undergraduate degree i you know like i also started reading this marxist philosophy i was kind of like a partially involved in this um in the uh, leftist uh, politics on the campus, and not like very actively though. But uh, I, I, you know, I started reading all of this, and at the same time, you know, like after graduating with my undergrad in computer science, I got this. It's very ironical. I got this Fulbright Fellowship, which is the United States, um, you know, like a federal fellowship that they like give one fellowship to each country, and then they, you know, like um, host. Uh, uh, scholar for their PhD um, in in US. So I came to Cornell and I had this tension in my mind, like this is something I have been reading, but this is not good of what I'm being a product of all of this. So I started uh, in Cornell Computer Science 
but after my first year, I was like, you know, the, the, the tension is going there in my, in my heart. Like I was not, uh, you know, like feeling comfortable with what I'm doing. Although like academically I was doing well, but I, I knew that I wanted to do something different. So, uh, during that time, Cornell also started a new department called information science. So I went there, I found some social scientists, like critical science scholars, STS scholars, they were there. Now, I had a few conversations with this, uh, with the STS professors uh, and I like shared my concerns and they said, well, probably you don't want to do what you were doing. And here in this department, you can probably, you know, like uh, do something which is, um, which may address the concerns that you were having, uh, if not fully, partially. Before coming to the U.S., I started a human-computer interaction research group in Bangladesh uh, with the local undergraduate students. So my objective was to, you know, address the local problem with the help of computing. So I was, so I already was interested in this area. So when this opportunity came, then I left computer science department and started my, you know, like an PhD kind of like a, a fresh start in information science department. My advisor was um, uh, Steve Jackson, and I still remember in my first meeting with Steve, so he's a social scientist, critical science scholar, like STS professor. I told him that, look, I know nothing about this, you know, like social science and all these things, but I want to read this. Will you accept a student who doesn't, you know, like know anything, but, you know, want to learn? And he said something which I still remember. He said, well, uh, at the end of the day, I'm a teacher and my responsibility is to teach someone. Uh, it's not like I want to crack, you know, publications out of you every year, but it's it will be, you know, like a, he, he said he would enjoy working with me. So then I started in the first two or three years. I just read, read and read with Steve and that changed a lot the way I saw the role of technologies in the society. I I could understand why a lot of technologies that I was trying back at my home in Bangladesh for helping the local population were actually failing because there were biases and wrong assumptions at the core of the design that needs to be, you know, like uh, corrected unless you cannot actually use these technologies for helping this marginalized population. So after graduating, when, you know, like I, I uh, you know, uh, started uh, my tenure job at University of Toronto, I uh, focused on exactly doing that, trying to find out where technologies are going wrong and how we could think about a different kind of computing technologies that could actually, um, you know, like uh, come out of uh, the interest of marginalized population. So that's how it all started. Wow, that's awesome. It's so interesting how everything came to be based on your like interest in wanting to learn more and understand and you kind of recognize where past faults could have came from. So I really applaud that. And um, it also, it says something about, I mean, the need for for scientists and folks to come from these communities. I'm sure like coming from Bangladesh has completely informed the types of questions and issues you're interested in. And I think a lot of people who are who are trained in, in, in kind of more privileged areas just don't, maybe don't think that same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, you know, like, uh, there are like a two... Uh, two major obstacles that I found in my journey from being a computer uh, engineer in, uh, in Bangladesh 
do uh, you know kind of HCI scholar here, the first thing was definitely I need to teach myself this social science, critical science, critical um, you know like theory stuff. Uh, this was not easy for someone who never started social science, so that was the first obstacle. But then the second one, which was very interesting and important that came to me later was once I learned all these social science theories, I also realized that most of this, even like social science and political uh, science uh, philosophy, these theories were also mostly developed by European and Western scholars. And then I had to kind of like uh, start rethinking about these theories. And then I started looking at uh, you know, like a scholars who are coming from marginalized population, like scholars from Latin America, scholars from Indian subcontinent, from China, from Africa, uh, scholars here from the black communities, from indigenous communities. And then I saw, well, you know, this is another, you know, like a round of education that I needed for my journey. I also really liked you mentioning that you came from a computer science background and the kind of disjointness of being from computer science and at the same time being a part of leftist organizations in your last year of undergrad, and then also getting this really prestigious scholarship to come to the U.S. that kind of leads into the model minority and how you feel about that internally, the access you get to these opportunities with this at the same time, you know, your personal beliefs and morals kind of not aligning with how you present yourselves outwardly. Yeah, and I have many stories, like, you know, like a, being a, like a Fulbright scholar, so they, they have this annual conference, and I remember uh, going to, you know, like a DC, they were, you know, like we were visiting a White House, and they were introducing each of the scholars from each country, like India, Bangladesh, and the overall narrative was, look, this is how United States is kind of, you know, this white severe narrative, and I could, I was looking around and I could realize that not everyone was thinking the same way that I was thinking. They're definitely very talented people. They're proud of themselves. And I was also very proud being a part of this cohort. But at the same time, I was also feeling this narrative is totally wrong. Um, it wasn't very easy to, you know, like uh, talk about this at that point. But uh, I also needed to educate myself. I know that because you cannot just speak out of what you feel in a, you know, like a assembly like that. But uh, eventually, I'm, I was lucky. I got like a very good uh, teachers in my life who helped me to, uh, you know, like uh, get foundations for my feeling, find uh, justice. Uh, well, at least the way of justice uh, where I feel the injustice uh, was coming from. Um, so that helped. So I, I am definitely grateful to them. It, uh, we're, we're, we're not necessarily sticking to our script. And, and I think that's okay because there's this, this richness here. I, I think it's interesting too, I mean, your switch from computer science to information studies because it seemed like computer science wasn't giving you the, the, the training or the knowledge or the information you were designing to speak to these more critical aspects. It was missing the, the, the theory and the philosophy and, and what we often label as kind of humanities 
type social or that's involved in social work and social justice. And for you to have that sense already, you're not going to get that from computer science. And yet that's how so many departments are structured. I actually just taught a, a class uh, for seniors here at Queens that was uh, an ethics kind of introductory course. But for a lot of the students, it's their first time in their senior year getting exposed. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for, for Queens for having that. But there's a lot of other computer science departments out there that are just interested in the the math and the engineering and they're missing they're producing engineers who aren't capable or who aren't ready to think about these really important issues i agree yeah uh, yeah i mean it's, it's a colonial education system and um, yeah we can talk about this whole day. Yeah. Yeah. Even another point to add, like just from my own perspective, I'm coming from a philosophy background and I'm trying to enter into the computer science spaces to even learn more about, you know, the actual processes. And it just kind of shows the importance of, you know, the interdisciplinary work. Like I feel like a lot of these um, initiatives wouldn't be as successful had there had been interdisciplinary collaborations. Yeah, it is very, you know, like a funny, you will, you will, you know, if you, if you now like think about this, this computer scientist, as you say, like the only, you know, like uh, focus on math, uh, you know, algorithms, programming, this kind of stuff. But when they, they you know, like a sell computer science outside, they say, well, computer science is going to change the world. They are going to change the society. Well, if that is true, did you teach your students about social science, how the world changes, the history, the politics? No. Then how do you expect them to change the society in a direction that we want? There is absolutely no answer. And if you want to like have a really deep conversation with a computer science student, computer science like a researcher, well, good luck with that in the first place. That they they won't probably be interested. But if you do, they'll say that well, no, we are not social scientists. We are not you know going to talk about this. This is what so I teach computer and society course at University of Toronto, and. Uh, even here, I see kind of like retaliation, even from the students who are saying that, well, we want to hear how computer science is uh, going to change the society positively. We're not here to hear how it is creating all this disturbance. Okay, that's not how it works. This is going to be the episode where all of a sudden we get a bunch of people writing into the Responsible AI podcast. They said, <laughs> as a computer scientist, they don't think I care about the world. And we're like, no, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. It's funny. I'm like the opposite of Vanessa. I'm going into my fourth year of undergrad doing a computer science and math degree and coming into the social science world, similar to you. So um, it's um, very interesting to take courses that are very computer science focused, math focused. And in my head, I'm always thinking about the like negatives and being the pessimist in the class, um, being more critical. And it's nice to have the opportunity to talk to people who are in this space of like who are social scientists, because we need that because there's no the social context of what this what computing does in the real world isn't taught to us in these classes. And there's like, ethics assignments that we get once in a while, but that's not enough. You know what, um, for you, at least I can say since, since well, I, I see you're kind of like following the path that, you know, like uh, similar to what I took, 
it's, it's difficult because you still, you know, you still wear the hat of a computer scientist. Every now and then you, you will be, your your capability will be gauged against a scale of traditional computer science, you know, like uh, scholars. So did you, you know, like I still have to publish papers which has like a hard machine learning algorithm. So I have to swim in two waters. And this is not very easy, uh, you know, uh, but lucky, probably like a, you know like a, you guys would be a little luckier because right now there are a few computer science professors they will find who have started talking about this so things are getting i would say a little better now um canada i would say is uh, still catching up because this kind of conversation is still very new in canada um you know like a, in I, if I if I look around, even in computer science department at University of Toronto, there will find probably two or three professors who are really, you know, like uh, thinking about computer science from this ethical perspective. Um, Queens has started a really fantastic program, but that that has just now started. The department is, is still ninety nine percent like all traditional, you know, like uh, in, in in traditional mold. So it will take it sometime but this i can also see a lot of like a very talented students like yourself are coming up with this all you know like an exciting ideas and they are seeing where things are not actually going the way they project computer science to be a uh, couple of days ago i had a, like a very engaging conversation with a very uh, talented um, you know senior year um you know like a student uh, uh, in, in our department and she was saying that well she wants to do something about this uh, you know how women are being treated in machine learning world and how machine learning can be you know like a sexist and all these things and i say yes this is the kind of research that we want people to do it's not about how you know the next version of alex our siri well even the next you, you should ask why siri with a you know, versus a servant talks in a feminine voice. It's th these are the questions that we we need to ask. Other than, anyways, we've got a whole host of questions we want to yes. ask that are part of this. So maybe uh, Vanessa, do you want to dig into our first set? Yeah, I'd love to segue. Um, so we're gonna, I guess, ask some more questions focused on sustainability. Uh, mm -hmm. But in 2020, you and your colleagues published a chapter in Transforming Global Health, Interdisciplinary Challenges, Perspectives, and Strategies called The Hidden Risks of E-Waste, Perspectives from Environmental Engineering, Epidemiology, Environmental Health, and Human-Computer Interaction. So based on this and other research, could you describe some of the hidden risks of e-waste that say the average person might not be aware of? And also, are there any hidden risks that a skilled computer scientist may be unaware of, especially in the age of AI? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for asking this question. So this this work was, uh, you know, like a continuation of a project that I started uh, during my PhD. It was funded by Intel. Um, the point that I was raising at that point, along with my advisor, was the afterlife of technology and this is another blind spot of computer science education if you look at uh, computer science uh, curriculum they teach people how to build a new technology but they you know like a seldom 
teach people uh, how to fix those if these are broken. And this is not an accident. This is like very carefully designed so that things actually uh, break down so that you they can sell the you know newer version of it. If iPhone 13 or whatever you know doesn't break down, why are you buy the iPhone 14 and all these things, right? Uh, so, but, th but this is very difficult to catch up with for the people who are living in the global south. Many of them, they, you know, like uh, use the second hand, what they call like a second hand mobile phone, you know, like the used mobile phones which are shipped to that part of the world. They fix those and they use those. So instead of design and development as the core of computer science, for them, fixing is the core of computer science because they get things which are already used by someone. Now, if you change this epistemology from creation to uh, fixing, which we call care, then we take this whole feminist lens of caring about the world other than, you know, making and breaking it, which is the Silicon Valley motto. So we approach this problem from an eco-feminist uh, point of view, definitely one part of it. So we did uh, like a very, you know, like an extensive ethnography in the repair markets in, uh, in, uh, in Dhaka, Bangladesh, where the informal, um, you know, e electronic waste workers, they were uh, fixing, you know, like uh, these mobile phones. And oftentimes they are not trained engineers and they are fixing this by their local knowledge, by, you know, trial and error uh, basis. And they were passing down this knowledge to their next generation. And we were trying to understand how knowledge is created there, what kind of uh, skills and knowledge is required to fix something which is not related to this, you know, like excitement of creating something new, which we see here in this part of the world. So we're trying to, uh, you know, open a total new area of human-computer interaction, which is not about, you know, design something, or something new other than, well, let's fix it. And this is directly connected to the question of sustainability, because if you fix one single broken electronic, then one, you know, like a less electronic waste you get. Uh, nobody teaches about this, you know, like an environmental problem that computer scientists are creating to the computer science students. And this is where I see this education in computer science is very incomplete. So when we published this uh, book chapter and here, so this was a collaboration with uh, with chemical scientists, like chemists, and uh, both in University of Toronto and in University of Buffalo in uh, in United States. Uh, so I actually, you know, like so it's just like a really interesting study. We uh, took the lab clean T-shirt from Canada to Bangladesh, and we requested the uh, electronic waste workers to wear that t-shirt for one day. And at the end of the day, we collected the t-shirt and then we shipped it back to uh, to Canada and we lab tested the chemical you know, components that are stuck to the t-shirt. And we found that there are like every single like an, you know, uh, harmful chemical uh, materials uh, were there at a level that is not healthy. And this only stuck in their t-shirt. Now think about how much they inhaled and how much is going to their uh, water and their soil, you know, and uh, and the whole environment. And when they are going back to their house, they're like, you know, like children and others. So we try to kind of like uh, uh, start this discussion to 
shift the focus from let's <clears throat> make and break something to <clears throat> let's think about the gearing part of what we have already built and how these things are becoming a monster. Um, <clears throat> this kind of research is very, you know, difficult to conduct because you don't get like a funding for this. So first of all, like you don't get industrial funding because industry doesn't want to hear about this. Why they would hear, right? Um, federal funding is hard to get because this is not Canada's problem. So you can only do this when you are, uh, you know, like a new professor. You get some seed funding, which you have the you know, like liberty to spend for anything. But you know, it's difficult. I wish I could continue this research, but the funny part of it is that this is that was also kind of like the last piece in that research. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Um, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say it's interesting um, you mentioning the environmental impacts to our earth, but also to the people. And especially, I think I'm thinking about the hidden labor behind all of the AI uh, systems being built these days. And it's very, very synonymous um, with these workers not being represented with huge companies not wanting to talk about them and what they're doing and what, and what they're going through and all of the waste um, that they that's being produced. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if I uh, pronounce your name, it's Akansha, right? Yes. Does it mean desire? So, yes, it does. Or it means wish, which is... Wish, great. desire. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great. So, exactly. So... And so this is where we need to focus on the materiality of technology. It's not only the afterlife of technology, which is problematic. The pre-life of technology is also problematic. When you build a computer, you need to mine materials, which are mined from uh, African country. Um, uh, so many African countries, uh, you, you know, like uh, the Silicon Valley, Afri Silicon Valley companies are going there they are extracting this minerals uh, definitely they are not paying the money they should deserve and the you know anecdotal stories that we we collected we we found that they're like a child labor involved they are working with the local goons and gangs and you know that they you know that it's, it's problematic in 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 so you know like different layers and now they are getting these materials from this you know, like a post-colonial lands, they're using this, only the use phase. They are, you know, only talking about this shiny little use phase. And when it's broken, they're throwing it away. And this is again, with this toxic materials and again going to the global South countries. So we are being extracted, you know, like things are being extracted. It's, it's, it's a, this whole old, you know, like a, uh, colonial system if you think about it extracting you know resources from colonial land and when it's, it's done they are throwing it away to again to this to this you know like a uh, colonies and uh, now in the labor part as i said the work is also being done by this this people this in sort of like engineers who are basically you know churning the will and getting the money for uh, for these richer countries so they definitely want to hide this, and like you can you can connect this to this uh, this feminist uh, you know like uh, idea of invisibility. Yes, you know like a, in 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 a domestic household work, you know women were often uh, given the task for let's say cleaning the table, 
and think about this how do you know the woman is doing her work correctly if there is no spot on the table if there is no spot in the table nobody would know the woman actually worked so this is the whole politics of invisibility how do you know a repairer repaired your phone well if there is no you know touch of you know like breaking which means that this politics of invisibility says that you are doing your work well when nobody can tell that you did your work. So they set the standard also in a way that this invisibility actually works. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole, you know, like a, it's a part of the whole game. It's so interesting too, when you ground like this computing in these like theories, it almost, it makes it make way more sense, you know, um, seems like even to the lay audience, like if computing was contextualized through theory, maybe people could understand better, um, like the implications that um, it really has. Yeah, but that won't help you make money, so. <laughs> exactly. Well, in line with um, the ideas of sustainability, um, in the same year, you and other colleagues also published a paper called Religion and Sustainability, Lessons of Sustainable Computing from Islamic Religious Communities, where you offered some insights into how a deep understanding of religious values could actually help design um, and inform sustainable living. So could you just briefly describe some of these findings? And also, could you just describe um, in what other ways you think you know, religions or other cultures could also inform sustainable computing? Absolutely, yeah. So this is um, uh, a little like more recent work, and this work was led by uh, one of my PhD students, uh, Rifat, who who has been focusing on this idea of um, secular ethics. So, uh, so here the you know like the the point that we are trying to make is that you know uh, in these days people uh, in this part of the world they have started talking about ethics in computing which is great but then the next question you ask is whose ethics is this because ethics is something which has already you know always been challenged in the history in different cultures so all this side where did you come this like whole like capital e ethics that nobody is questioning about so uh, by the way of questioning it, so he started looking at the other sources of ethics and, uh, and his field work is with this, uh, you know, like a religious communities uh, in both in this uh, in global south and this um, immigrant communities here, how they practice, you know, like a religion and how technologies are actually upholding their values or not. So then uh, we were investigating the idea of sustainability which uh, you know like uh, is often upheld uh, with I, we believe in the right intention by the scholars here but now the idea of sustainability when we wanted to uh, investigate that from a global south perspective it's quite you know like a different and this clash between this religious ethics and this secular ethics is, is old, right? Um, you know, if, if this post-secular scholars, they have al already said that in the West, what we call uh, secular is actually shaped by Judeo-Christian values that uh, uh, that basically shape this uh, thing and this, uh, you know, this 
uh, attempt to separate the public life from personal life actually never work. Like, which values do you use to shape the public life? You know, and so, and these questions become very important and essential when you look at the design of technologies. I give you one example. So, um, uh, it's actually uh, you know coming from a paper that we 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 often read in our group. So the story is that an NGO uh, was uh, rolling out a very good, well-intentioned weather prediction service in a village in Bangladesh. The idea is very simple. They will tell the you know like the villagers that whether it may rain or not in three or four days so that the, you know, like the villagers can take actions, you know, according to their, you know, like a, if they are farmer, they would do this or they would not do this. So since this was like a, a village, they were uh, using the mic of the mosque to announce this. So after a few times they did that, the leader, the Imam, who is the leader of the mosque, he said, no, you cannot do that. And they said, why? And they said, well, only God knows what will happen in future. A machine cannot. And you were basically, you know, like challenging that idea. Now, now that what the Imam said is actually, you know, makes sense. They said, well, we value that you were, you were seeing what can happen uh, about the weather. But the other kind of like uh, <clears throat> damage that you were doing in people's ethics is even more problematic. If you break it here, then there will be other problems that will start coming to the society that you cannot handle. There will be like a thieves and then the additional crops that you are getting in your field would not go to the farmer's house. So that kind of like it tells you like how we computer scientists often think in a very in a narrower way and why we need to, you know, engage more with society with the people who have been holding this social structure for a long time there's there's so much to learn from them and we often like um, don't look at uh, you know don't value this this knowledge uh, so this uh, this particular paper that you mentioned was also looking at sustainability from that point of view you know this whole microeconomic value of sustainability like you turn off this light this is definitely good. There's nothing you know like uh, wrong about it. But at the same time, when you think about in a in a broader scale, where you know like uh, uh, you think about this environmental politics, like who are actually using most of the energy and who are taking the toll of it, then you say like this ethics discussion, can, and then you go to Bangladesh and tell people to turn their switch off because the global warming is happening and because the, their children are now starting. This is this is rude, you know. So this microeconomic, this behavioral, these are all good, definitely. But you also have to think this in a in a broader way. So there is there is where you know, like uh, we were bringing in this uh, idea of what they call like this Arabic of justice in Saf, I think in in in, uh, in Hindi and in some other languages they also use this. Uh, so that's that kind of like a calls for broader idea of justice, not justice in a very narrower way, which you can codify in your in your computer program to see like everything is in a Pareto optima, and then you make this uh, make your decision. Um, so that's the point that we are trying to make in that um, in that paper. We are starting like 
we ask people like why aren't you why are you using so much water for washing yourself when you're going to pay you could use less that kind of rant and then they, they were you know they say that the water that is going out we do not throw it away we reuse it so there's no point of, and you know it's a it's a river in country bangladesh is basically full of you know like a water what they get flowers so it's not a problem for them to use so that so this is the you know like a question that we are bringing there that how engaging with theological ethics may give us a a different way in a broader lens to think about ethics which is currently missing in this part of the world but it was tricky too because um, when we were trying to make this argument uh, from let's say islamic point of view then they're like definitely competing other religious you know like point of view but our point was not to uphold like islamic argument we were just making the point that ethics is contested and it has to be contested and you just don't come up with like capital e ethics that makes a lot of sense i think it's so contextual like especially in canada we have these huge freshwater lakes but then there's general statements as about using less water and using less electricity when it's extremely dependent on where you're situated in the world and what yeah. what are the issues in the community that you're living in and it's not about you know large corporations telling you that there's one thing that every individual can do in the whole wild wide world to fix everything when it depends Extreme. Absolutely. And these are like natural resources that were robbed from indigenous communities to start from. And now you go there and teach them how to, this is, you know, insane. I mean, they did the same thing with, with recycling, the whole campaign for recycling, yeah. the idea that it's, it's, up on, it's up to us as consumers to somehow uh, do anything with these, these products as opposed to the companies themselves and the products that they're making, that holding them accountable for these things that are then going to inhabit our environment in really toxic ways. Yep. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, we are making great time. Uh, so uh, I, I think we, it's probably worth segueing to kind of our next set of questions. Uh, Akanksha, if you want to go ahead. Yeah, sure. So um, a lot of your work advocates for novel design approaches based on collaboration and informality with marginalized communities. So based on your research, what are the different ways this could come about when applying AI technologies in healthcare, especially when you want to ensure that marginalized and underrepresented communities are prioritized? That's a good question. So this basically comes down to the question of this politics of knowledge. So even in this part of the world, in Canada, if you look at the healthcare, there is this... Um, modern healthcare system and the you know like in hospitals with modern medical science but in parallel we also have traditional healthcare and now you know being a student of science you may ask why would people go there because it's not scientifically tested and all these things now if you look at the global picture you will find there are more people around the world who believe and practice you know or, or like take help from the traditional healthcare than the people who are, you know, like using this modern scientific um, healthcare system. And we saw this happening in this, you know, like a vaccine rollout program too. And, and those of us who didn't know about this global picture, they were surprised and they were saying that why so many people are not taking vaccine? 
Well, definitely, we want people to take vaccine, but we also need to think about the reality. These people were always, you know, like, a, uh, you know, detached from the system. And, you know, part of this happened because we, the modern scientists, we never, you know, like took the pain to have this conversation, come to a mid ground, to respect the respect that they deserve, to, you know, appreciate the, you know, like the their, their traditional uh, medicine and how we can, you know, make a bridge. You know, we didn't do that historically. We we we, did, we only did the lift service. The same happens in the global south. So we started for one year the witchcraft practices in the global south. And uh, those of you who know about this know that uh, you know still you know till today in the Indian subcontinent, in Latin America, in Africa, mental health is always treated by spiritual you know like uh, services. There are spiritual leaders now. You believe in we believe whether we believe in it or not is irrelevant people practice it you cannot no you cannot just erase it in the next day and now when you kind of like forcefully you know like a push this modern medical system there people won't like it and we we you know like interview people we ask them why do you still go to the traditional system and then they come with with the answers which are really you know like an eye-opening they say well, if you go, if your hand is broken, you know, you, you fell and your hand hand broke and you, you go to a doctor, the doctor can only say where the hand is broken and how this could be like fixed. But they can't answer the question of why, you know, I got a broken hand. But if you go to uh, which, they could say that, well, I might have done something wrong in my life. I might have, you know, like... A, are uh, done injustice to my brother or sister that's why you know god is punishing me toward uh, with this misfortune so you can see that how body is connected to their ethical being so and, and this modern medical system is you know as secular as it is it failed to make this connection which is very essential for uh, this kind of uh, traditional communities uh, even if you look at this indigenous um, indigenous um, literature body and mind are not separate body mind and nature these three things are kind of like and connected the same thing that we you know the, the study that we read here in canada we found the same thing in bangladesh and in other parts of the world they find it sorry if you hear the screaming of my three months old it says you know like a fitting time um anyway so uh, coming back to the point of this informality, so this is where we think like technology is not connected. And, you know, if you go back to this whole, you know, like the history of medicine, you will find that, you know, a, a very interesting story here is the uh, is the story of cholera in Indian subcontinent. Cholera came to Indian subcontinent through colonization. You know, this disease didn't exist before these colonizers brought this uh, disease to the country, then people were dying, then they brought the medicine, and then they, you know, the, this whole problem and solutions were made by the colonizers, and then they started making business out of it. And till today, they are supplying medicine there. So this is also, uh, uh, you have to talk about this whole uh, global pharmaceutical business, which is connected to that. Now, with your computing, if you are you are only you know you don't look at this history and the politics, and you only talk about uh, you know why people are not taking this vaccine, 
then you are you are missing the point. So this is this is something you know like uh, uh, which bothered us, and in these studies we were then started thinking you know about people's uh, so-called informal you know like actions, um, informal means which are not like scientific traditional government imposed uh, things like that they do, and try to make sense of it, and whether we can take that seriously, learn from that, design technologies around that, and that's how we can empower these communities to their own values. Going back to a point you mentioned, I think the the distrust that a lot of marginalized communities have with these uh, like vaccines and other medical scientifically made, you know, medicines because of past exploitation of these communities is isn't mentioned when we talk about um, anti-vaxxers, for example, or people who aren't willing to um, take these medicines. Yeah, yeah. So we, you, you did wrong to these communities, and you did that for hundreds of years, and now you go there and you expect that all of a sudden they will trust you, and you know they will take in their body and their in the children's bodies, whatever you were injecting into that. That's that's too much. It's also, I mean, speaking, tying in religion and and the studying and understanding people culturally and contextually, there there is a bit of this this kind of uh, like savior complex that comes from computer science and technology. Like we've got the we've got the solution. We're going to save these these uh, lesser communities. And but you talk to any uh, or any of my colleagues who are doing ethnography or anthropology who are working with communities, they they're, they'll easily tell you how hard it is to get inside to 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 be accepted to be a part of these communities and hear their stories and and get that insider perspective and yet uh, yeah technologists and and uh, computer scientists they they think once they've got the solution they can just plug and play it anywhere without getting to know the people that it's that it's going to go to affect yep no absolutely so one thing that we need to keep in mind that even ethnography has a part of that has a has a colonial aspect in it you go to a foreign land you extract knowledge from there you name it whatever like you felt about it and then you publish that in a so it's a it's a very it's a, it's a very you know like a problematic thing laura nadir uh, is one anthropologist who talked about this in her 1971 or 72 paper like it's called like a starting up. We need to study the uh, anthropologists instead. Who are they? Where they are coming from? What their intentions are, and, and what kind of knowledge they are producing. We need to, you know, like uh, we need to uh, value the knowledge that this community is producing with the people of the community, not like we go there as an outsider. And this is why I also saw like when I do the field work in Bangladesh or in Indian subcontinents. Sub- Part of my families are in India, part of in, in Bangladesh. So I, I, I can see the you know like the reports that I write, the papers I write, they have like a totally different essence than my well-intentioned friend uh, from North America who pay a visit there and they try to understand the community and they report about this. They are not wrong, but they often miss the point, um, and. Uh, that's very important, and you don't get this point unless you, uh, you know, like uh, you were there for a long time. I can give the example of like this, this Malala case here. 
you know, like uh, Yusuf Zay Malala from Pakistan, she took a bullet in her head because she was fighting for women's education. She was, you know, taking the group of guards to the school and in the in the middle, like she was shot by this, uh, by the, you know, like a villager. So from our side, it may sound like, well, this is a terrorist act. Why wouldn't people uh, allow guards to go to school? And we do recognize, you know, like this bravery of Malala. But at the same time, when you hear, when you like carefully listen to the community members, instead of like calling them, you know, like barbarians in the first place, if you listen to them, they'll say, well, we also want to teach our women, but we have a way of teaching, teaching the women. We have like all women community groups, the senior women teach, you know, like a, you know, the juniors, and that happens in, inside our village. We do not recommend women go to, you know, like a separate Western schools. So you, you have to hear that carefully where they do not teach our values. They teach math and engineers. And the next day we see that our, our children disappear from our village and work for them. We don't want that. So that's when you, you know, like a, put that in the perspective then you see like these people are not, well, well, I, you know, by no means I, I, you know, like uh, support for, you know, like everything that they did, but that's not the point. The point is that we are not listening the whole story. If we listen to the whole story, we might have come with a better solution. Now in the, in these days we have like, you know, like this remote education system. We could teach these women, keeping them at their home, respecting their, you know, like traditional values and avoid this whole collision between this, you know, like, so th this is this is where I think things are problematic. Things are difficult. Um, what anthropologists here from the field is definitely difficult in the respective work, but um, oftentimes that fails to capture the whole story. I I, I want to rewind just I I've never really considered the idea of doing of like computer scientists doing field work, but like even having that as as possibly like a kind of a requirement of computer science education, like part of what you're doing is going into a community that's very different than your own, learning their problems and helping them solve their problems, as opposed to coming from the outside with a solution. Yeah, so in human computer interaction, there is now a tradition that computer scientists do actually go to the field mm. and um, they try to understand what people want and then they start like designing technologies to that. It's it's a good, so first of all, it's a, it's a good uh, practice and we're glad that it's happening. But as I said, it, it also, it's, it's not also very easy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not just you go to the field, talk to a bunch of people and you come up with a design strategy. It's, um, it takes a, a lot of work mm -hmm. to actually capture the sentiment of a community. That's not very easy. Okay, I'll segue to the next question. Um, in your recent work titled Shishu Shuroka, am I pr pronouncing that right? Just yeah, for perfect. Okay, perfect. I'll re-say the question. In your recent work titled Shishu Shuroka, a transformative justice approach for combating child sexual abuse in Bangladesh, you prototyped and evaluated Shishu Shuroka, an online tool that involves the whole community. Based on this work, can you describe the promise of communal approaches to combat healthcare disparities? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's actually a very good question, and that kind of like um, 
ties a number of points that we uh, we discussed so far. So this paper actually talks about transformative justice. And transformative justice, one thing that the scholars uh, in this in this line of work says that it's not about, you know, like uh, fixing the problem on the surface, like someone has committed a crime and you punish them. No, you look into the structure of the society to try and, to un and you try to understand why this person actually committed this, this crime. And then you try to transform the society so that similar crime doesn't occur uh, in, the, in, in the future. We saw this coming from the uh, uh, black uh, scholars in, in North America. We saw that coming from the post-colonial scholars talking about this you know, colonial damage in Latin America, in Africa, and Indian subcontinent. So we are trying to uh, bring this lens to the design of a technology, uh, which is targeted for you know, like um, child sexual uh, abuse. Uh, so one way often, you know, like these technologies are designed like this, uh, you know, like uh, uh, this, uh, these apps which are intended to combat this harassment, even for like a women, they ask uh, women that you are the potential victim of harassment. So you will check in here and there. Here's the panic button. You will praise. You will take the picture of the you know, perpetrator. You will report. So all the responsibility is put on the potential victim or the victims, which shouldn't be the case. Why, why would, you know, like a, a person who is already, you know, like a marginalized, historically marginalized in the society, who the society has now made vulnerable, would do all this work. This is against like everything. So instead, and, and this also doesn't work for children. You cannot ask the children to carry a mobile phone and do all this work. So that's the point that we are making in the paper that instead we need to change the society and how we, you know, like our functions, why is a child is in, in this community is now left alone to a place where they are disconnected from their, you know, like a parents and, you know, how this modern you know, economic system is pushing us toward that and that is creating this, this problem. And why is uh, someone who is a potential perpetrator is kind of uh, left, uh, you know, unnoticed how is the spatial design made in that way? How can they get access to a child? Um, so, uh, and, and if you want to face this problem through a community engagement, like a, you know, like a person, uh, a bystander, uh, you expect them to report against uh, uh, this kind of crime. This also often doesn't work because you don't also, you know, allow them to, you know, uh, take these social responsibilities because uh, uh, they are busy with their own, you know, like day-to-day -day work. And this modern economic system has made everyone so busy that they don't get a time to look at other people's business. And with this neoliberal ethics, which is, uh, which has spread out uh, all of the world from, from this, this, this part, uh, says that you don't, you know, like, um, you don't talk about what other people are doing. Then how do you expect a bystander to, uh, you know, take an action uh, about what they say? So this is all messed up. So we we're then saying that well, definitely we need to find the perpetrator and we need to take action. But at the same time, we need to transform the society. 
otherwise it's this the you know it will not be sustainable it will the design will just impose additional load on the parents on the children of the teachers and you know no, and we are not giving them any uh incentive uh, so it's it's not going to work um this so this is this is this is why it's you know like when you think about the justice and fixing the problem we uh, you know on the computer science part although like we do this design work but instead of thinking design as the solution of the problem we kind of think of technology or that we build as a probe to understand the deeper problems in the society expose that and to start a discussion around it because we know that if we want to change the society technology can only be one small piece of it we need changes from law from education uh from government from politics from a lot of other sources too okay for for sake of time let's uh we'll we'll segue into kind of our final set of questions and then we have uh just a few kind of uh uh pragmatic calls to action at the very end so our next set of questions i'll i'll, I'll be reading so we got this one <clears throat> Many, if not all, data sets used in machine learning are extremely unbalanced and biased towards a certain population, what I believe you refer to as people in the weird or Western, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic domain. This is even more prevalent in healthcare and health data sets. How can we ensure that ethical data curation to fill in the gaps of missing data so that the machine learning models trained on this data are more equitable and generalizable towards all populations? while also establishing an equal non-exploitive relationship with the marginalized communities who we're trying to represent? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, like um, ethics in computing these days uh, has now, like the discussion around it has now mostly converged on ethics in data science because that's something that, you know, everyone in computer science is excited about. So when you think about this decolonization of data science is very difficult because when you start thinking about data you know uh, you all you your mind is already cooking the data so let's say you want to learn about a population the question is what do you learn about them and you say well i want to learn how many people live here so you are thinking about this population in terms of numbers. So you have you are already cooking the data in your mind. So, so now if you ask me like how you can decolonize this data collection, well, the first question is you you started to colonize the data at the point when you thought about getting the data. So you need to change it from the epistemology. So first of all, like why we need why do we need this data this is the question is it the need that we have in our, our mind are they shared with the community whose data would be used and this question is uh, never asked in a way um, that's meaningful and effective people go to the twitter you know like a scrape as much data as they can and then they make a model and then the population then they make software out of it but the people who actually wrote on twitter did they actually write their post for you to use that for making a software no did you ask their permission no why did you 
you know, say, they probably save something out of their mind to share that with their friends. How do you, why would you consider that as a unit of the data that you are then using for your sentiment generation technology? That's a robbing. And this kind of unethical data accumulation uh, is happening, uh, you know, in all over the world these days by the companies who have uh, a lot of computational power. Now, a lot of people do not understand these things. They say that, well, if the data is open, then, you know, it's, the problem is solved. No. Let's say you were talking about billions of data points. These are open. Although these billions of data points are open, I cannot use it because I do not have supercomputer. Then the only people who are getting benefited out of this open data are the people who are rich, who have access to supercomputers. Google, Facebook would make money out of it. So we need to think about uh, the ownership of the data, the materiality that are connected. Materiality means the actual materials like the machine, the manpower that you need to make use of this data. And then you can see this is only feeding the rich. This is not going to feed the poor people. Now, why would Google spend so much money for helping, you know, like the people who are not going to produce money for them? You know, they maybe, you know, once or twice in a year throw some, uh, you know, like a peanuts for, you know, just to make uh, news that they are helping people, but they, they, they are not the part of their business, right? So this is where it's uh, the problem with responsibility. Theoretically, it's possible, yes. Theoretically, it's possible. You, you, uh, you get the question from the Global South community, you collect the data according to their needs, according to the way they believe it. You make the system that data is owned by them, that technology, the machines are made by them, and it's how show me one single example of it it never happened in anywhere in the world because they don't own this this you know like the materials uh, so they are always on the extraction end like their data are being extracted nobody pays you a single dollar when your data from facebook or twitter is being collected and they are using this data for making their money so uh, to follow up with that, it, it almost sounds like kind of the, the bigger problem isn't necessarily kind of the, the data that's out there and, and how it's and what we do with it. So it's more like an, an industry problem. We have a data industry problem where it's like the, the, the industrialists or the, the folks on top who get to use this data the most are, are not kind of giving back or not kind of being ethical in, in their actions. As opposed to, so like, let's say if someone from like one of these communities, ha like using ChatGPT now and their internet connection was able to scrape kind of Twitter data and then did something. So it's not like the data itself is unethical. It's that so much of the power disparity gets put in to these, these corporations up top. Yes, I would say there's a part of the problem. So think about this. There are incidents, well, in a, in a broader picture, let's say we can think about some data that are being produced by the marginalized groups. For example, I'm coming from Bangladesh before, so my education was in US. So before coming to US, I was using a bank account for three or four years. Yeah, for, for four years for my undergrad, uh, during my undergrad. Uh, when it came to US, 
I showed them the bank record, the data that was produced in the Global South. They did not accept that. I was driving my car for three years. They did not consider that as a valid driving experience. But anyone who drove in Dhaka or in, in, in Mumbai or in Delhi, they know that driving is way more difficult here than you drive here in this part of the world where people actually follow the traffic rules. I, I did know that I can drive like way better than the person who was teaching me how to drive there. And we drove there with broken cars. Anyways, I'm not going there. But this is the politics that is being held, you know, and it's, it's a part of international politics here. Uh, let's say the industry is not directly involved. The, here, the international government politics is also involved. And here is this whole idea, which I call data stigmatization. If data is coming and produced from marginalized bodies by women, by you know people of color, by you know like um, uh, LGBTQ communities, they try to either devalue or discard this data so that they can be in charge of it. And this is why every time they discard any data, they devalue any voice from the marginalized community. We need to ask the question: Why? On which you know, ground they are discarding our data. And I mean, we're, we're lucky to get that data to begin with because it's usually marginalized communities that sometimes it's the hardest to like to, to even get data from. Well, you you'd think so. Now think about Canada. The country is having a severe problem in healthcare uh, because we don't get enough doctors. And now all the immigrant doctors, they are driving Uber. Why? the same problem with data stigmatization. So they can't take this problem of healthcare, but they still cannot allow, uh, you know, this Global South data to this country. This is a very deep problem. It requires like a whole transformation in the society and economy uh, to, to fix this. Yeah, and as we hear again and again about the language of how transformational this technology can be. But that's, I mean, it's because it can be so quickly and broadly applied, but really we need to be slowing it all down and it, it, it's it, to, to implement it in, in safe, kind of contextually uh, healthy ways that is taking to account all the people it's going to affect requires it to be a lot smaller and it requires us to minimize its effects, but people don't want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And if, you know, the examples of, you know, like chat GPT or mid journey, these are like great examples of it. So, you know, the, so it's funny because if you generate, let's say a new image with mid journey, which is an AI application for creating a picture. So it will steal tiny pieces from millions of images to produce a new image. Still, it's, a, it's, it's stealing. And they are breaking all the, you know, like an IP rights. And also like the artists, they don't want the pieces of their art to be, you know, like a stolen. You don't take permissions from them. And you are also uh, using that tiny piece in a totally wrong context, which is which might be insulting to that, you know, artist or to that community. So this is, and you can bring the same examples for chat GPT. So I'll... So these are not going in the right direction. Although, like you know, like privileged people, they're getting help out of it. Although now they're you know it's, it's, it's being questioned. A lot of students are using this chat GPT for basically cheating in their assignment. And now you buy another software, AI software that can catch if someone 
So you know how they're making, they're first creating the problem and then making business out of it. You, they first, you know, introduce the problem in your life and then they start selling the solution. So we are already here. Uh, okay. So with time, I think we'll probably have one last question uh, and then we'll, we'll transition out. Um, so uh, our final question is, as a computer scientist who does a lot of work in the interdisciplinary social sciences, what have been the difficulties you faced trying to bridge the gap of understanding between the multiple fields? And what advice would you give to butter, budding computer scientists who care deeply about social justice and want to contribute in this space? Right. That's a good question. I do not know. I have, uh, you know, like the, a good answer to this question because I can only speak of my own experience. But I think one thing is important uh, that is to talk to people who are outside of your discipline and, uh, you know, read things that are outside your, your you know, like a, your like a narrow focus. Uh, and that may not, you know, like a readily bring you like a money or, you know, like a fame, but in the long run, you will become a better scholar. Um, and getting friends, uh, making friends in other department and discipline is important and talk to them in an informal setting, uh, you know, uh, and try to learn from them from from there is important. But you also do not learn everything from academia, from your school. And this is why it's important for, and this is, this is where computer scientists are very bad. They are often very detached from their own society, own community. So talk to your, you know, like uh, people in your community, try to learn the practices that they have been holding over generations, why they are doing this. Uh, and uh, try to learn from your family too, your, you know, like your, your seniors in your family, in your community. Uh, and then try go back to your computer science book and look at their assumptions and critical questions. Who said this is the good thing? So be bold. Uh, and that's very important. And try to find a safe space where you can ask questions and people won't judge you based on your questions. We, so, you know, initiatives like this that you were, you were bringing in, I, I, I hope if, if a part of that, uh, uh, you know, becomes like connecting the uh, people who, who think in this way, at least in Canada, to develop a community where juniors can ask this question, well, even seniors can ask these questions and you know, we get answers from each other, we have reading group, we share ideas, then that may help. We need to create this kind of a space because academia won't really give us this space because it's not, you know, money making. I think that is, I, I mean, I, I want to hear your answers to the kind of the last three questions I have. So maybe we'll follow up over email, but we're just to, to keep it within time today. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Yushatik. It was my absolute pleasure and privilege to be here. And thank you for asking all these great questions. And that concludes our episode. We want to thank Dr. Ahmed for sharing his insights and knowledge on sustainable computing community approaches to computing, and ethical data curation. We hope that these important conversations continue as the age of AI dawns upon us all. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Responsible AI Podcast, and thanks for listening.